As we uh, continue our study through the book of Romans, we come this morning to a little bit of an unusual text uh, to the point that some have suggested that Paul didn't write it. It just doesn't seem to fit, they say, with his, his uh, gospel uh, message throughout the book of Romans, but uh, certainly was written, uh, I believe, and with many others by the hand of Paul. And relevant to the, his writings and relevant uh, to the, the rest of the letter as well and certainly fits within the context. And so, uh, but yet a, a different and a somewhat unusual text to look at this morning as we consider our relationship as believers to governing authorities. So Romans 13 uh, verses 1 through 7. And uh, before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. <clears throat> Lord God, we praise you have done. We praise you for who you are. And we praise you for revealing yourself, Lord, to us through your word. I pray now, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us a, a right understanding of our role as believers and our relationship to the governing authorities. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead us and guide us and, and help us to be faithful. Uh, to live faithfully as your children in this world. And so I pray that your word would be planted deep in us this morning, that it might bear fruit of abundant transformation and change for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning, Romans 13, 1 to 7. The Apostle Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a, a story about a, uh, a, a true story about a pastor, a uh, during the uh, uh, Nazi regime in Germany. So Paul Schneider was a pastor of two small churches in, in sort of the, the countryside of Germany during the Nazi regime, and the Gestapo ordered him to allow for Nazi ideology in his churches, and he refused. He was arrested on May 31st, 1937, and, and kept in prison without charge for eight weeks. When they finally released him, uh, they gave him a deportation order that forbade him to return to his congregations. And he uh, took that order and he tore the order to pieces in front of the Gestapo officials. 
And in a written letter, he explained that the charges uh, of injustice and rebellion that were leveled against him were, uh, were unproven and untrue. And that he could not obey the order to stay away from his churches because God had placed him in charge of them. And he said in this letter, among other things, he said, even if punishments are applied, I still know that God will judge between me and my government on his day of judgment as to the obedience that we owe according to God's word. He has given the government the worldly sword to punish the wicked and to protect the righteous. But he has given the church the spiritual sword of his holy and eternal word until God's kingdom comes in eternal and perfect righteousness when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself will be both priest and king. And so, Pastor Paul returns to his church and was promptly arrested and imprisoned, and he was sent to the concentration camp at Buchenwald where he preached the gospel through his cell window and where he refused to salute the Nazi flag. And on Hitler's birthday, he would not remove his cap in his honor. His actions, as you might imagine, were repaid with brutal beatings and torture. And on July 18, 1839, he was executed. And he left behind a dearly loved wife and four small kids uh, to whom he could have returned if he had obeyed the Gestapo's orders not to pastor the two small churches where God had placed him. The reason I share that story with you this morning is because uh, it... it, it it, raises, or it helps me to raise the question that I want us to consider together for, as we study this text from Romans 13. So the question I want us to consider this morning is this. In light of our, in light of our, our text here in Romans 13, was this pastor's action the right thing or the wrong thing to do? Was his refusal to obey the governing authorities going against what God's word demands or was it consistent? Was it honoring what God's word demands or or to, to frame it a little bit differently in a little broader terms? How are we as Christians to relate to government? That's, I think, the question that, that, that presses in on us through this text in Romans 13. How are we as Christians to relate to the government? Or, and maybe to bring the point a little closer to home, if I, if I dare go this, uh, you know, back into this territory, if governing officials were to mandate that we stop gathering for corporate worship, are, are we bound by Romans 13 to comply with the demand? These are the kinds of questions that I think we ought to wrestle with. These are the kinds of questions that I want to wrestle with in light of Romans 13 and, 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 and to, to study it with, with authenticity and, and with carefulness and care. And I hope that by uh, the, the end of the message, we can answer them, at least begin to have a framework to answer them with a measure of clarity and direction. So as we enter into the text of Romans 13, as we look at the text together, we, we find really, I think, three main principles to guide our thinking about our relationship with the governing authorities. And the first principle is that the governing authorities are established by God for our good. 
The context makes it very clear that uh, when, when Paul talks about governing authorities, a phrase he uses repeatedly throughout the text, that what he's talking about is, is, are, are the civil authorities. So he's not talking about, about authorities in the church. He's not talking about authorities in the spiritual realms, as, as some have tried to argue. Uh, but, but the context and the language and, and every, all the exegesis behind this text makes it very clear that he's talking about those, those in positions of authority in the state or secular domain. That's, that's what he's talking about. And Paul says that these authorities are established by God for our good. He says in verse 1 that there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He really couldn't make that point any clearer. He says in verse 2, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. He says in verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And then again in verse 6, the authorities are God's servants. So again and again, Paul makes this claim uh, and, and that, that the governing authorities are indeed established by God. We see the same idea in other parts of Scripture as well. The main theme in the book of Daniel is that, is that God is sovereign over all kings and kingdoms on earth. So, so there are kings and kingdoms that, that, that you know, will, will come and go on the stage of redemption history, on the stage of human history. And the point that Daniel makes is that God is sovereign over all of them, that God raises kings up and brings kings down. So we read in Daniel chapter 4 how King Nebuchadnezzar was judged so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. It is God who brings these people to position. It is God who, who sets over kingdoms the people that, that he wants to be in place. And again, in Daniel chapter 5, we read how Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So there was a little clash there. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, you know, I am, I am supreme. I am the one, and I've, I've, you know, I've raised up my kingdom, and it's all my domain, and God was teaching him, no, uh, actually, I am the Most High God, and... and uh, all kings and kingdoms are under my authority. The prophet Isaiah said of God that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And, and Jesus said to him in response, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And so the governing authorities exercise their rule under the sovereign hand of God. It is God who puts them in place and it's God who gives them the authority to rule. And that's the point Paul is making here in Romans 13. Now, governing authorities are established by God for our good. And we have to understand the, the, the context in which Paul makes this claim, because it's really quite striking. The, the governing authorities at the time of Paul's writing were, were the rulers in the Roman Empire. So the, the, these were not Christian or, or, or God-fearing people in positions of authority. 
In fact, the Roman Emperor Nero was growing increasingly hostile to Christianity, and, and in just a few short years, he would be murdering them for entertainment. And yet Paul says that God has established these rulers for their good. We, we, that's, a, that's, a, that's a profound statement that Paul makes, and we, and we, need, to, we need, need to hear that in, in the context in which it was spoken. And Paul probably felt compelled to make this point because if you remember from uh, a few weeks ago uh, in Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses, uh, Paul had just said back in Romans 12 not to conform to the pattern of this world. And he knew that his readers would wonder, well, what does that mean in terms of our, of our relationship to the governing authorities? Uh, because I think many would take it as a, as a license to rebel or to disregard what, uh, you know, what, what the governing authorities say. Because we have a new identity in Christ, after all, and, 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 and we are, you know, we are citizens of his kingdom. We live under his lordship and under his rule as our true king. And we are called not to conform to the pattern of the world. So when the governing authorities tell us to do something, we have free license, maybe even obligation to, to disobey as, our, you know, as living out our identity as, as, as you know, the new creatures in Christ that we are. And Paul writes this part of his letter to correct that way of thinking. The governing authorities, even those who are not followers of Christ, are established by God for our good. I should qualify a little bit here. I believe that Paul, and just to clarify, I believe Paul is talking here about sort of you know, broad level or, or big picture issues. Uh, he, he is saying, uh, I believe, that, that governing authorities are established by God for the general ordering of society, right? So God is a God of order, and he has established civil authorities as a means of providing order in the world that he made. And so in general or broad-level terms, the, you know, the governing authorities provide order and some measure of, of justice and, and restraining of evil. Of course, they, they can corrupt and twist that as, as is often the case throughout history. Uh, but it's for our good in general, it's for our good that there are speed limits and that there are food and drug laws and that there's laws against stealing and murder. All of these things help to provide a, a, a safer society in which at least some evils are reined in. And that is a, a, a function. That's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about the sword punishing the wrongdoer. There's a measure of, of, of good and order that's provided in society through the governing authorities that God has put in place. And in this way, uh, governing authorities are indeed established by God for our good. Now, there's one more thing I'll, I'll say before I move on to the second principle. And that is that we also have to, to temper this just a little bit. We have to read this in light of the rest of Scripture, which I'm going to get to in our third principle. But just at, at, at this stage, I want to just say that the same, uh, governing, the same government that, that Paul was writing about here in Romans 13, uh, the Roman Empire, in, in a space of about 30 years after his writing, uh, John wrote about this, this government as well in the book of Revelation. And so here in Romans 13, Paul Paul describes it as a servant of God. 30 years later, when things have gotten so corrupted and twisted, John writes about uh, the same Roman Empire as a servant of the devil. 
So we got to keep, we have to keep that piece of it in mind as well. And it's interesting. I think Revelation 13 is a little bit of a parody of Romans 13. It's sort of a parody of the, the devilish side of, of government as when, when held against Paul's picture of it as a servant of God. All right, so the second principle this morning is that we are then, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. In verse 2, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And in verse 5, it is necessary uh, to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. In other words, this is not only you know, right to do for your own well-being to avoid being punished, but also as a matter of what God is impressing upon you as the right thing to do. We see this idea, again, in the, in the words of the Apostle Peter, uh, who said, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Show proper respects to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. And so the instruction of both Peter and Paul is quite clear that we are to submit to the governing authorities. And the word submit um, means literally to, uh, it's the Greek word hypotasso, to arrange under, to arrange oneself under the authority of another. And so when Peter and Paul tell us to submit to the governing authorities, it means that we are to acknowledge and respect the authority that God has given to these offices. So again, the governing authorities are part of God's created order, established, uh, established by him for the good of society, and we are to place ourselves under the authority of these offices. We submit for the Lord's sake. So as Peter says, we don't submit for the sake of, of the people in those offices. We don't submit for, you know, for, for their sake. We submit for the Lord's sake. We submit as an acknowledgement that the offices bear the authority that God himself has, has established. Let me give you a little sort of a word picture or an analogy, an illustration that might help to kind of bring some of these things into focus a little bit. Suppose that you work for a really large company and the CEO has created the position of, of processing manager. And, and you and your team of people report to this processing manager. Now, the CEO of this company is, is a good man. And he's been with the company for years. He, he treats his em employees really, really well. And he's trustworthy and, and he's, he's honest. And, and to the best of his ability, it seems like he always has the good of the company in mind. But this man that he has hired to fill that position of processing manager is really kind of a jerk. He, he's, he's arrogant. He's selfish. He's, he, he can be mean and insulting. He does not treat his, his employees well. And you just don't trust him. Now, the question is, what do you do as an employee? Well, you, you submit to him, or, or there's other channels. I'm not, I don't live in the business world, but maybe you go to HR or something. I don't know. I never had to deal with that, but maybe there's other channels you can do. For the sake of this little illustration, you, you submit to him, not for his sake, but for the sake of the CEO, right? You, you submit because you know the CEO is the one who created that position. And your submission to that processing manager honors the CEO and, and serves the good of the company. 
Now, in a similar way, then, our submission to the governing authorities honors God, and it serves the good of the world that he has created. That brings us then to the third principle. The third principle is that our submission to governing authorities is not absolute. We have to, so again, we have to read Romans 13 in light of the rest of Scripture. And and the rest of Scripture clearly shows that there are times when we as God's people must go against what the governing authorities say. Let me just give you a few examples. In Exodus chapter 1, we read how the king of Egypt ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys that were born to the Hebrew women. And and the the Hebrew midwives rightly refused to comply to the king's command. The narrator says that the midwives feared God and, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And God clearly approved of their action, for the narrator says, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered that all the people fall down and and worship the the image of gold that he had set up. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do what the king said. Because, of course, God commands we worship him alone. And when the king said that they would be thrown into the blazing furnace if they did not comply, this is what they said. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And God, again, rewarded their act of civil disobedience. When they were thrown into the blazing furnace, when, and when you know, Nebuchadnezzar got so angry that he, that he ordered it to be heated seven times hotter than what it, what it had been, uh, and they were thrown into the furnace, God sent a servant to be in the fire with them. And the narrator says that not, not even a single hair of their heads was singed. A few chapters later, in Daniel chapter 6, King Darius issued a decree that anyone who prayed to any god or any human other than the king himself would be thrown into the lion's den. And what did Daniel do? Well, the narrator says that when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So he defied the king's decree. And once again, God rewarded his act of defiance. He was thrown into the den of lions, but he was not harmed. As Daniel said, when the king went out to him the next day, he said, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Then we get to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were preaching, uh, uh, speaking and preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, and they're able to perform wonders and signs, and it's it's getting the attention of the people, and are kind of, uh, things are getting stirred up, and and interest is getting created, and so the Sanhedrin gets wind of it, and they get really, really nervous about the impact that this is going to have on the people. 
And so they thought, well, we better do something about this. We've got to rein this in. And so they, they, got, they got together and they came up with a plan. And Luke says that this was their plan. They called uh, Peter and John in and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And how did Peter and John respond? Did they consent in a spirit of submission to the authorities? Did they say, well, you know, we are commanded to do what the governing authorities say, so I guess we've got to stop speaking and, and, and teaching in the name of Jesus. No, that's not what the Luke says that Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, we read how the Sanhedrin pressed down on them a little bit harder. They, they found the apostles still going about filling Jerusalem with their teaching. And so they brought them back into the Sanhedrin and they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And yet here you are still teaching in the name. And they replied, we must obey God rather than men. In all of these situations, and there are many more throughout Scripture the people of God did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They did not submit to the governing authorities. They defied commands and decrees, and, and God blessed them, and God looked, uh, looked, looked with them looked, uh, with favor on their actions. And so when, when we put all of this together, when we read these accounts from Scripture together with uh, the text in Romans 18, I think we can formulate a guiding principle. And the principle is stated, I think, so clearly by John Stott. So I'm just going to give it to you in, in his words. So John Stott says that we are to submit to governing authorities right up to the point where obedience to the state would, would entail disobedience to God. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist and to disobey the state in order to obey God. In other words, we are to acknowledge and respect the authority of governing authorities, as Paul says. P Paul couldn't be clearer in Romans 13 that we are to submit and respect the authority that God has established with governing authorities. And yet, in light of the rest of Scripture, it's also true that we, we know that our highest allegiance is to Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if ever our allegiance to the state conflicts with our allegiance to Christ, then we must say with Peter that we have to obey God rather than men. So, where does this then leave us with our opening story? Was Pastor Paul Schneider, right or wrong to resist the Gestapo and defy their orders? Well, I, I hope we can see at, at this point that it was clearly a case in which submitting to them would entail disobedience to God, and so what he did was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when it comes to the issues of our day, we, we strive to abide by that same guiding principle, right? In, in some cases, it will be clear that, that obedience to the state means disobedience to God, and we will know what we have to do. Now, in other cases, there will be sort of multiple layers of complexity. I, I think we've encountered some of that in, over the past few years. There, you know, things aren't always so crystal clear or black and white. We, there, there, there are issues that come up that, that take discernment, and we have to wrestle honestly and authentically with them. So these multiple layers of complexity, and that will require discussion and, and going again and again to the Word of God and striving to discern together what it, 
what it compels us to do. And it will be hard at times to discern whether we are called to obey or disobey. Sometimes there's not really super easy answers. But in every issue, we must hold these two things in balance. On, on the one hand, we must not flippantly dismiss Romans 13. We can't just, you know, just disregard Romans 13 and anytime and, you know, any issue comes up, say, well, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have to listen to that. No, I mean, Paul's language is strong and clear in Romans 13. We must not and cannot flippantly dismiss it. We must wrestle honestly and authentically with what Paul's command to submit to our governing authorities means in each and in every situation. But on the other hand, we also must not just blindly acquiesce to whatever the governing authorities say. We have to have discernment to know when the governing authorities press down on us in a way that compromises our allegiance to Christ or our obedience to God. And we have to have the courage to defy them when they do. And just to sort of put my cards on the table here, if the governing authorities were to issue a mandate that says we cannot gather for corporate worship, it would be my hope that the church would not just blindly acquiesce to that mandate but would ask instead, what would God have us do? What, what does God's word command of us? What does God, God's word have of us when it comes to corporate worship? And if the mandate would have us do something that God forbids or forbids something that God commands, then I hope that we would have the courage and the trust to say we must obey God rather than men. Several years ago, I'll conclude with, with this the fast food chain Burger King was set to open its first location in Belgium. And to launch its opening, Burger King started an online publicity campaign. And the campaign raised the question, who's the king? And it allowed online viewers to vote for who they wanted to be their king. There were only two options. Uh, one was a cartoon version of King Philippe, who, is, who was and still is currently the real king of Belgium. And, and the other was... Was, uh, was Burger King. And, and the campaign came with a slogan that said, two kings, one crown, who shall reign? Now the campaign was quickly shot down by the royal family, who said that they did not give it their authorization, and in so doing, they sent a very, very clear message that there really is only one true king. In the end, that is the message of the Bible as well. We are called to submit to governing authorities, and we have to take that command seriously. But our submission can only go so far because our ultimate allegiance belongs to Christ, who is the one and only true king. And so may we live faithfully, and may we live boldly and courageously in service of his kingdom. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to give us a spirit of wisdom and discernment and understanding as we wrestle with these words of the Apostle Paul. O oh Lord, may we take with utmost seriousness his instruction to submit to the governing authorities. And may you, O oh Lord, fill us with the wisdom and the discernment we need to know when those situations arise in which our call to submit conflicts or clashes 
with what your word commands. And in those cases, O Lord, fill us with courage and trust to live in obedience and allegiance to our true king. Lord, I pray that you'd hear our silent prayers as we offer them before your throne this morning. Lord, hear our prayers, for you offer them before your throne. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, amen. <laughs> 